Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here I am, this guy from New Jersey representing a New York kid and the New York kids hate me and the general public hates me and I'm just like a shy 17-year-old kid, you know? Like, people would, like, threaten to beat me up, like, randomly and I'd be like, dude, that's a movie. Like, what are you talking about? I'm Justin Jay. As a photographer, I've gotten to shoot rock stars, hip-hop moguls, world-class athletes and some other truly extraordinary subjects. I'm fascinated by the backstories and life experiences that help shape these compelling people. The right photograph can reveal quite a lot about someone, but some stories can't be told with just a picture. Sometimes you need to sit down, listen, and dig a little deeper. This is The Plug. In the mid-1990s, New York's skateboarding scene was an eclectic tribe of teenage misfits. Downtown had yet to become completely gentrified, and the streets were a fertile playground for kids seeking to escape their dysfunctional families at home. They created their own community based on their common enthusiasm for skateboarding, malt liquor, and carousing the streets of Lower Manhattan. In 1994, today's guest was cast in a small independent film that followed the dark exploits of a group of New York skaters. The movie was comprised almost entirely of first-time actors from the Washington Square Park skate scene. The explicit sex and drug use in the film was over the top, but it felt eerily verite and disturbing. The fallout from his role in this movie was severe. Since then, he's had a long list of diverse and compelling roles, but his pursuit of a career in acting has since been eclipsed by his passion for fine art. His latest endeavor is an art space that's noticeably void of the intimidating and exclusive atmosphere often found at traditional galleries. His stated intention is to help foster a community reminiscent of the extended family that he developed as a teenage skateboarder. So how do you transition from a downtown skateboarding outcast to respected gallery owner? We'll find out as we sit down for a conversation with an actor who starred in one of the most controversial movies of the 1990s and has never looked back. Today, actor, skateboarder, DJ, and the intrepid curator behind the Lower East Side's public access gallery, Mr. Leo Fitzpatrick. Leo Fitzpatrick, thank you for sitting down, man. Good to see you. Likewise, thank you for having me. So you're a pretty busy guy. You wear a lot of different hats, actor part-time DJ, gallery director, parent. Um, It's been a very challenging year, to say the least. Walk me through some of your highlights. What are you most excited about? 
Uh, oof. yeah, basically I like to stay busy because I don't know what the alternative is. You know, it's like kind of how I've always lived my life. And, uh, I also think that it's kind of nice for my son to see me being productive in a time where the world doesn't make much sense and it's hard to figure out what's going on. And, you know, so for me, starting a gallery from scratch during the pandemic was like, difficult but also i don't know really kind of special and i'm glad i did it you know i think i say some people buy fancy cars or nice watches i run an art gallery that's how i throw away my money. So. <laughs> well i want to hear i definitely want to hear about your gallery we'll get to that in a second but you know just for context so you and i met because our kids go to school together in lower manhattan and I'm I'm curious. It seems like most people are pretty good at being able to separate the art from the artist, or in this case, the role from the actor. But I'm wondering, have you had any interesting experiences or encounters as a parent as a result of some of the roles that you've played, particularly telly and kids? Uh, no. I mean, it's so long ago. I look so different. Um, not so much, you know. It's weird. Acting plays so little of a part in my life. Like, I like, I don't know if my kid even knows I'm an actor. Like, that's how little it's discussed. And yeah. I don't know, maybe people recognize me, but it never comes up. Like, it, it's it's such a non-issue that I, I don't know it from other, other people's point of view, but I, I never notice it. Um, the one thing I will say is, like, I didn't and still don't really know how to be a parent. Like, you know, and I think none of our parents actually knew what they were doing. Everybody's just kind of winging it, you know, and trying their best. And I think in the East Village, we have a really nice community of families that all, you know, didn't have a house to escape to upstate or in Long Island during the pandemic. And and everyone that stayed there really, like, got much closer and... um like for my kids being raised in Tompkins Square Park, basically. And when they closed down all the playgrounds, the kids were forced to play behind the bathrooms at Tompkins, which is a scene unto itself. <laughs> and, uh, and so over the summertime, the kids nicknamed it Rat Skeeto Park because it was just full of rats and mosquitoes. And like, to me, that's a beautiful memory, <laughs> you know, of this time where... We didn't have much, but we had each other and the other families and, and we all completely trust and love each other and, you know, look out for each other. I'd say it's a brilliant testimony to how resilient kids are and that they, there's no baked in reality. Like we have associations with rats and mosquitoes and bathrooms in Tompkins Square Park, but it sounds like for for them, that's just like, that's the place they play. That's the place that they've come to love. You know, that's, that's the reality. And the same thing with masks too. Like uh, me personally, like in two and a half years, like my son is, I don't think ever once complained about wearing a mask. It's adults that have issues with it, you know? Yeah. Nor has my son. It's just like their reality. And, you know, today was the first day back at school where masks were optional. And that was a strange feeling, seeing so many people's yeah. faces and stuff. Um, and it's sort of the new reality, I guess you would say. And and we had to, like, make sure to tell our son, like, don't judge people if they continue to wear masks or if they're not wearing masks. It's, and I don't know if we're out of this thing yet. So however people want to play it, you got to respect that, you know. Yeah. 
Do you think do you think your 15 or 16 year old self would see the irony in you being a parent now and maybe having to navigate how your kids discover some of these roles that you've been in? I mean, is there is there an irony in that? Yeah, I mean, so I'm from New Jersey originally. Right. And I discovered skateboarding when I was maybe nine years old. And by the time I was 12, I was coming to New York City pretty regularly. Uh, you know, whether it be with like some friends or, and we would all meet up at the Brooklyn banks and, um, basically kind of had total freedom. Like mom worked, dad wasn't around the and skateboarders at that time were all from dysfunctional families. You could be a rich kid or a poor kid or any ethnicity. The common factor was you came from a fucked up family and, and through skateboarding formed another family. So it's crazy to think my son isn't that far away from that age. That must be a little frightening. Yeah. Um, And I always think to myself, if my kid's hanging out in Tompkins Square Park when he's 15, 16, he better be riding a skateboard. Like, you know, it's like (laughs) you can't just sit around, smoke weed and and complain. You know, you got to be somewhat productive. So, So I met Larry Clark when I was 14 and we shot kids I turned 17 while we were making it. So I we started the film when I was 16. And weirdly, my mom kind of knew that it was, for the most part, true, that's that storyline, except for the sex, because that wasn't happening at all. Um, but uh, she signed off on it, you know? And um, it's kind of crazy. You know, there was a beauty in not knowing what we were doing. Like that we, it was like, oh, you want to make a movie? And you're like, sure. I don't know what that even means. Like, I've never wanted to be an actor. I found that I was like, well, Harmony was such a good writer that the lines were easy to remember because they fed into each other. And they rang so true to you at the time? Yeah. And Larry was great to work with. He was 50. He was super healthy. And I lived with him while we shot it and stuff. And um, he became like kind of a father figure for the rest of my life. And we're still friends and stuff. But um, I definitely am aware that there is a time frame until my son basically tells me to get lost. You know, (laughs) like, I don't want to hang out with you anymore, Dad. And uh, I think that would be around like 14 or 16. It could be earlier. I don't know. And then when he gets older, he'll realize oh, like, dad was really trying, you know. And and that's why I bring I bring him to Coney Island, like, way too much. And I try to go on these, like, mini sort of trips to, like, like we go to Chinatown Arcade all the time. And that's, that like, place. that's just, like, to build a memory, you know, to kind of have a special place for just me and him, you know. I remember in the 90s, you used to be able to play tic-tac-toe with a live chicken in that, in that place. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I had a friend that lost to a chicken. Oh, the, the chicken won every time. <laughs> and I'm sure it was like electroshock, like super cruel, like no, it would not exist today. But Yeah, I used to go, they, they used to throw parties in there, like raves at the Chinatown Arcade. And I didn't realize how small it was at the time. It's a pretty small joint. Like, I don't know how you would throw a party in there now, but... Um, so we had Tony Hawk on the show recently, and we were talking about how, how skateboarding is often portrayed in the media, whether it's kids or 
Jonah Hill's mid nineties or North Hollywood or even HBO's Betty. And you know, the, the, the tone of all those shows is very different, but the one theme that seems to be consistent is this, this sense that skateboarding allows you to be a part of a specific community and it it helps give you like this sense of friendship and sense of, um, identity, you know, and and, and it's a really romantic notion in a lot of ways, because it harkens back to that time in your life when who you were hanging out with and what you were doing that night, it was really like two of the most important questions in your life, you know, and, and you age and obviously that changes a lot. And I'm curious in some way, was your depiction in kids representative of your actual lifestyle in Manhattan, not so much the dark parts, but just the sense of belonging that skateboarding allowed you to have? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's weird. Cause when I watched mid nineties, I was explaining to people that that was actually closer to my upbringing. I just connected with that movie in a way I didn't connect with kids, even though, or it was almost like my life was like mid nineties until the time period of kids. Like it was very innocent or whatever. And then I really started hanging out in the city and kind of things got a little more dangerous or whatever. But, um, but yeah, I think mid nineties does a great job of depicting my experience. Kids also was good at depicting some of it, but like being from New Jersey, like New York skaters are known for being like jerks, you know, like they're not nice guys. And being from Jersey, you're always the underdog and people always make fun of you and talk smack and whatever. But we had like a strong crew. And so, you know, we didn't let any of that affect us, you know. And then there were certain guys in the New York skate scene, Harold Hunter, Peter BC. There were a few guys that were not just generally nice, you know, and they would be nice to everybody. And this is when skateboarding was like at a really low point as far as being like popular. So nobody really had any legs to stand on or was better than anyone else. It was just an ego game, you know, and uh, and so I also wrestled with that idea of is my kid going to be entitled simply for the fact he was raised in New York? Is that enough for him to think that he's better than somebody? Yeah, because that's the kind of New Yorkers I grew up around where they were like, well, I'm from New York. You're from New Jersey. I say that to my son often because I don't I don't know how long we'll live in New York or, you know, if he'll end up going to high school here or whatever. But I would say like the one thing no one can ever take away, like you were born in Manhattan. Like nobody's born in Manhattan. You know what I mean? Like you'll always have that at the very yeah. least, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, but I always say that skateboarding is like the root of everything I've ever done since. Like, and you know, I skateboarded to work today. Like sometimes, you know, I'll see people on longboards and I'll be like, oh, that's so lame. And then I'll look down and I'll be riding a skateboard and I'm like, what am I going to be doing this when I'm 50? You know, it's like, <laughs> it's, um, it's just strange. Uh, I'm still very much like aware of what's happening in skateboarding. A lot of my friends are either pro skaters or, you know, have worked in the industry or were pros at one point you know i'm closely affiliated with a lot of people at supreme just because that we like kind of grew up at the same time period so it still plays like a huge part of my life which is interesting considering i'm like on the outside i got hit by a car when i was 27 so 
my left leg is all messed up. Like they almost amputated it. That's how bad it was damaged. And so I can't really feel my left leg. I can run, but that's about it. But like to do tricks is like out of the question. So I'm basically just like a long border at this point. I just cruise. But it still represents it still represents a very important role in your life and like obviously in your heart too, in terms yeah. of community and memories in yeah. New York City. Yeah. And when I opened my gallery, this new version of my gallery, originally it was on St. Mark's Place. And I was like, I want to do a gallery for the kids who hang out on St. Mark's Place. I want it to feel more like a skate shop or a record shop than a, a kind of stuffy gallery, you know? And now we're down on Henry Street, right by the skate park. We're like in between like Dime Square and the skate park. And nothing makes me happier than when like a group of skateboarders walk through that door because I know they're maybe not comfortable doing that in Chelsea or going to museums or whatever but but my place can kind of serve as this sort of entry level way to look at art you know I want to shout that out for a second because it's called it's called Public Access Gallery it's down on Henry Street um and I also just want to say thank you I I came to one of your openings a few weeks ago and I have to say like since COVID, that was the first time that I've been out in a long time and seeing so many familiar, friendly faces, hanging out, drinking, looking at artwork. And it, it was it was really, really refreshing. And I get the sense that, you know, not just the artwork, but the community that you foster at that place was is something that's really important to you. It's not about, I assume you're not getting rich on that gallery. It's more about providing a, a, a space and a platform for, for people to get together. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, like for sure. Because for me growing up, the art world was pretty inaccessible and I didn't really know how to navigate it, what anything was. But there were two galleries that I would constantly go to. One was called American Fine Arts, which had definitely a younger kind of energy to it and Alleged Gallery, which was Aaron Rose's gallery. And Alleged Gallery was so closely aligned with skateboarding, and they would do shows with, like, Mark Gonzalez and Mike Mills and Chris Johansson. Like, I'll always respect Aaron Young. I mean, Aaron Rose for providing that. Like, I, that was so needed. So I, I just try to provide the same thing, you know? And, yeah, we barely break even. Like, if we do... I don't even know if we do break even. <laughs> But and, and then also, like, during the pandemic, like, when I started this new version of it, I was like, why does it seem so much harder? But during the pandemic, it was just nice to have somewhere to go. You know, like, I opened this thing at the beginning of the pandemic. So even if you weren't able to go anywhere, I could still go to my gallery and I could still in a very responsible way four people in at a time type thing provide something for somebody to do you know um so that mentally was really good was to like to just have a responsibility and not just sit at home and be depressed yeah well it's interesting you brought up alleged because i mean i couldn't help but think of alleged when i went to that opening a few weeks ago i mean just even the physical size of the space is pretty similar yeah. you know and like the vibe outside i was like it was it was really cool just kind of like resurrecting and then reinventing kind of what we all got to experience on Ludlow Street in the 90s. Yeah, and I, I don't know how long we will be around, <laughs> but I do know that as long as you make an impact, it doesn't matter how long you were around.
like, you know, you hear about Mud Club, but Mud Club was only in existence for like three years or something, you know, or some of these like party, like NASA or the tunnel or things like that. I, I remember alleged moving from Ludlow to Prince to the Meatpacking District. So it must have been, they were around for a while, for sure. But but even if I had just gone to one show, it would have like changed the course of my life. That was so important to me to discover as like a young kid. And, and that's really all I want to provide is like that experience for other young kids, you know. So, I mean, you named it public access. And I know on one hand, I assume maybe it's a reference to public access TV, which we both loved growing up with in the 90s and kind of fostered careers of everyone from Robin Bird to Ricky Powell to just the most random cool stuff. But, you know, having that word access is, is accessibility a core mission statement for the gallery, not just for artists, but also for people that want to come and experience art? Yeah, like for me, I wrestle with the term even art gallery. Like I kind of consider it more like a community center. It's meant for young kids to foster their community and to meet like-minded people. I have one employee, and he only works once a, once a week because that's all I can afford. But I had a friend named Calder who was working for the MoMA Teens program, and he said that the funding in all the high schools and stuff for the arts was basically non-existent. So a lot of these kids would come to the MoMA to these teen programs to get any kind of like art world experience exposure yeah and they were really like the hungry ones the ones that were really looking for it and and so he sent diego down to me who was 17 at the time you could tell he was hungry and i said well i can't offer you much but hang out and i guarantee you'll make friends and you'll build your community and find like-minded people and he and he did oh what i forgot to mention is he's from venezuela and he lives here by himself his mom sent him up here to get out of that country and he's just like he turned 18 but he's like just trying to survive you know and and i was like dude stick with me like and like so that's cool and and he has his own crew that kind of comes to the gallery and hangs out and they're all misfit skaters and like i love that you know um and then other gallerists they think i know what i'm doing which i i don't and i think and i tell them that and i think that's reassuring you know that it's like I say, you know, it's okay to fail, but you have to kind of, the idea of failure means different things to different people. So financially, I could be like a complete failure, but spiritually, completely successful, you know. I find it interesting that you, you have mixed feelings about calling it a gallery versus like an, uh, you know, like a community space or an art space or something, because at, at a base level, I understand what a gallery is. It's a physical space. You represent artists. You put work on the wall, have a show. Hopefully people like it. They buy it. Like that's pretty straightforward. But then again, you know, you go to Chelsea sometimes and there's these 3000 square foot spaces with white walls and high gloss floors. And you walk in and there's nobody there. And there's like a fucking pile of broken glass in the middle of the, of, of the showroom. And like, yeah. I just, I don't understand that. I don't understand the economics of it. I don't understand the context of that art. And it seems like in a lot of ways, some of those galleries do that by design. Like they're intentionally meant to make outsiders feel ignorant of the art and, and excluded. Like, is that a, is that a fair statement? Is, is, is your gallery partly a reaction to that? Yeah. For the most part, you know, it's like, again, like I talked to my wife about it and stuff and 
and other artists and they'll say, well, you know, you have like a confidence that not a lot of people have. And because I'm always promoting, go to galleries, they're free, see as much as you can. Like you never know when this artwork will ever be available again in your lifetime. So go see it, you know. But that being said, I can go into any gallery dress like a bum with a skateboard and not give a shit about what anybody thinks of me. And that takes years of experience. That takes years of like building your confidence, knowing what you're talking about and not competing on some level. Like I don't feel a need to compete with anybody, whether it be material objects or anything at all. And like for the most part, like sometimes I'll be invited to like artist dinners and stuff. And I don't really have much to say to those people. Like I'm not trying to do what they're trying to do. So like people think I don't like selling art. That's like a reputation I have. And it's like, no, I'm just not good at it. <laughs> and it's like, I'm not anti the art world. It's just, I'm doing something a, a little different. But it's, it's weird because you go into a larger gallery and, you know, maybe they look at you funny or ignore you and blah, blah, blah. What you have to remember is that's not Larry Gagosian. That's not David Zwerner. That's a fucking intern. <laughs> you know, it's an intern. Like, yeah. why would you care what an intern thinks of the way you're dressed? Well, it's funny, though. You see that even, you know, back at, whether it's in the 90s, you go into Kim's video and you get shade from some dude. I'm like... You're not, you're purveying movies. You're not making them. <laughs> I mean, it's this, are you going to a cool yeah. record store or a cool, you know, fucking shoe store back in the day or whatever? You know, it's like, you've always encountered that. And it, it, I think it takes a bit of maturity to step back and be like, why the fuck am I intimidated by you? You know? Yeah. And it's funny. Like, I, I loved Kim's video. Oh, of course. But I mean, it had a certain atmosphere sometimes, you know? That was like my film school. And it wasn't, until I like broke through that kind of the clerk, whatever, being like too cool for school. Then once you're on the inside and they start recommending movies, like you knew you had like kind of established yourself in some way. Um, But, and yeah, I go, I go to a lot of record stores and Supreme has very much a reputation for cool guy and people. And yeah, I, I kind of let it roll off my shoulders. I don't really um, care too much. But, but that does take age and confidence and being content with what you have and what you can offer people. You know? Yeah. I mean, um, so, you know, speaking of, you know, Kim's video and, and some of these places, you know, it seems like there was a time, at least me personally, where I would skate down, whether it's Avenue A or St. Mark's or Prince Street or Lafayette and you would run into someone that you know, or at least someone you recognize. And like, for me, that's just not my experience anymore. And I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, I'm a parent and I have different priorities and more responsibilities. I'm not out as much, but the city has also changed dramatically since then, you know I mean? And I don't want to get too far into cynical old guy reminiscing territory, but is there, what are, what are a few of the things that you miss the most about New York that when they closed, it was a real dagger to your heart and kind of like a, a benchmark for the end of an era in New York City? Uh, I mean, I think, again, it is just getting older. Like, my friend group went from, like, literally feeling like 100 people to, like, maybe 10, you know, or something. And then I think back to my parents not really having any friends. And, like, as you get older, your friends, they just get weeded out, you know? You really get a few core friends that you, you stick with the rest of your life. But for me, 
I, I don't know. It's it's weird because it, it'll sound like I put a lot of importance on this, but like drinking culture has changed so much in, in New York City. Like, because I, I was a Max Fish guy and Max Fish, this is like pre-cell phones and stuff. You just went in there and chances are you knew somebody and then start talking and that was like the start of your night yeah. and like wherever you would go. So there, for me, there was like Max Fish, Lit Bar, Motor City, I mean, there was a bunch of them, but then you realize like they were kind of more like rock and roll bars and like weirdo music bars. Like, like hip hop is so prevalent now that every place is kind of like a hip hop bar and like a, a nightclub of some sort. Like you go to a restaurant and they're like blasting hip hop and you're like, well, that's going to change the, the audience. You know, that's going to change the... I don't know. I just feel like New York has become like very fratty and like um, the drinking culture. Like when I when we were 27, we were definitely the jerks, like ruining people's night and like being rowdy and fucking it up. But we were all like misfits and weirdos. And I don't know, just kind of bum rushing the scene. Now it seems like everybody's kind of dressed very similar and it's bad to say, but it's kind of like stock bros or frat bros or whatever. It's just the whole attitude of drinking to me seems like I wouldn't want to be a part of it. Yeah, I think Max Fish closing was like kind of like a real benchmark. But then there's other things, too. I mean, you have Tower Records becoming a soul cycle and other records is I mean, other music is closed and can't buy a magazine at Gem Spa anymore. And yeah. St. Mark's is just vape shops and frozen yogurt. I mean, the city as a whole has just changed so much since then, too. Yeah, and I think any of the interesting people that moved away during the pandemic aren't coming back. There's no, I don't know many people that left and like came back. It's like you either wrote it out or you moved away. And now all those apartments are just kind of being filled by these like young professionals and it's sort of, I don't know. And I always think that kids do know what's up and they, they do find cool, interesting things. And that maybe I just don't know where it's happening. Like maybe it's happening in like Ridgewood or deep Brooklyn, Greenpoint, places like that. But East Village on certain nights is basically like unlivable. Yeah. Like it's horrible. Well, it's funny you mention that because I, I, I lived in the East Village the entire 90s and then I moved down to the Lower East Side. And in some ways it's a, distinction without much of a difference. It's very geographically close, but it's really a different neighborhood. And I hadn't been in East Village that much until my son started going to school up there. And I'm up there a lot now. And I was like, yeah, I really don't miss a lot of things about this place, you know? Yeah. But it's interesting. I think in a lot of ways, it seems like we've, we've witnessed the full circle of New York City, you know, back from downtown culture in the early 90s when you could kind of just do whatever you wanted and skate and drink and the cops generally left you alone and it wasn't as crowded as it was now and then you kind of merged into the Giuliani era where there was quality of life crimes and they cracked down on jaywalking and drinking and strippers and then you had the Bloomberg economic boom where there was so much money coming into the city and re rising real estate costs but it seems like now during COVID, it's almost like it's gone full circle. Crime's a little bit on the rise. There's a lot of empty real estate. The cops are kind of ambivalent about enforcing a lot of quality of life crimes. Like, do you think, do you think there's a creative renaissance on the horizon for New York? Or do you think it's just really hard to undo a decade's worth of gentrification like that? I mean, I would hope so. If I was younger, I would wish that I was more... 
I guess people just need to be angry enough. You know, I think, you know, it's a, there's that public image limited lyric, anger is an energy. Like, if you're just kind of shrugging your shoulders and, like, waiting for something to happen, it's not going to. Like, you have to get angry enough and say, this is what's missing. I'm going to go do that. And that's up, for, that's up to the kids to do it. We, we all got shit to do. Like, I, I do my little gallery, but, but, like, as far as music and art and all these things, like, I couldn't stay up till 4 a.m. if I wanted to. You know, like, that's a, that's a young man's job, you know? Like, a young person has to do that. And so I thought there was a lot of opportunity. Like, I've never been on a lease before I got my gallery. I've never had a credit card in my life. But because of the pandemic, I was able to get on a lease, right? Like, and, and now I'm building credit. It's like, it was like, for me, like a kind of start over. Like, let's see if I can do this because, <laughs> you know, everybody's sort of in the same boat. So basically what I'm nervous, scared about is how much the rents are already rising again. And it's as if people got rich off the pandemic or something, or it weeded out the weaker, poorer people, and now we can charge whatever we want, blah, blah, blah. So that makes me a little suspicious. And the difference is is also like in New York, not a lot of people are dealing personally with landlords. You're dealing with corporations or a secretary of a corporation, and they don't actually give a shit about you. You know, they just want their money, and that's the end of it. Um, they don't care if you're going to go homeless or if you have a family and you're being displaced. They just want their money. And if you can't pay it, they'll get somebody else who can. So that kind of sucks. I mean, it says a lot when we go two years through a pandemic and nothing has changed with healthcare or anything. Yeah. You know, there's there are these, like, facts of life that are, you're just like, are you kidding me? Like, with these, like, little Band-Aids on these problems, but they don't actually help in the long run so yeah i don't have much faith in anything to be honest it's like it's hard to like that's what i'm saying that's why I'm, i like to be busy because it's hard to like keep a positive outlook when like you know there's so much wrong in the world yeah well so switching gears for a second what what's your what's your current relationship with acting i got the sense that you kind of stumbled into it almost by accident as a teenager at least in terms of you obviously didn't move to new york city to study at Juilliard and becoming an actor. Yeah. But at the same time, like you've been really fortunate enough to have like a really interesting, diverse career. I think most people from an outside perspective who aren't involved in the biz at all would think, oh, well, once you're in a major motion picture or once you're on a TV show that you're A, you've made it or B, that you're filthy rich. Like yeah. what's, what's the biggest misconception about being an actor and having a role that reaches so many people? I mean, I think... Just that it guarantees some sort of uh, career because so when I did kids, like I said, I was 17. Everyone made $5,000. That was our paycheck for the whole movie. And we were able to get out, take out advances. So a lot of people had already spent three of that $5,000, you know, and there was probably taxes on it and shit. So we didn't like make very much money off that movie at all. Um, and then when it was over, my theory is that the studio liked this idea. Is it real? Is it fake? What is this thing? Who are these kids? Where do they come from? So the studio never used the actors to promote the movie. It was always Harmony and Larry, right? And there was also nobody to tell us what to do following the movie. 
Nobody said, oh, here's how you get an agent. Here's how you leverage this into the next thing. So most of us just went back to like skateboarding at Union Square Park. So you didn't you didn't have any career guidance after that in terms of like a manager helping you kind of navigate the minefield of of Hollywood and, and the politics of being an actor? No, not for a few years. Like Chloe kind of was always going to be successful. Whatever she did, she just was charismatic and cool. And I think like Chloe and Rosario had a little easier of a time with that. But for myself, Justin and Harold and whoever else was in the film, yeah, there wasn't really any guidance, advice, anything like that. So it was really weird. And I'm also like kind of fairly like independent. Like I don't really hang out with a lot of people. And I'm sort of shy. So, you know, it was weird to be recognized for playing a bad guy that people didn't know is this real or fake, you know? Um, Like, people would, like, threaten to beat me up, like, randomly. And I'd be like, dude, that's a movie. Like, what are you talking about? And again, I'm 17, so I'm not, like, really... And I never really, like, look back. I never, like, talk about it, really. But when... I was 18. I think I saved up like maybe like $600 or something. And I moved to England. I moved to London because I knew the movie wasn't coming out there for like another year or something. And I just didn't want to be associated with it. And I didn't want to even be associated with New York because here I am, this guy from New Jersey representing a New York kid and the New York kids hate me and the general public hates me. And I'm just like a shy 17 year old kid, you know? And you're not even getting laid and rich off of it. <laughs> so it's not. Definitely not getting laid because my character is giving people HIV. Yeah. And, and the amazing thing is uh, the amount of like criticism before the movie even started from like Miramax and stuff or whoever, like they would tell Larry Clark, like, this kid isn't good looking. How could he be the lead in the movie? And Larry would say, well, you know, if he was good looking, he wouldn't have to chase girls. You know, he wouldn't have to like pursue it so hard. The girls would come to him and they're like, yeah, but we can't understand a thing he says. Can we send him to speech therapy? Like it was so bonkers. And then the reviews came out and like some of the reviews were like attacking my like physical appearance and my voice and stuff. It wasn't even about the movie. It was just like, who is this fucking hateable character? And the, I think the pinnacle of that was that year we went to the SAG Awards. Justin won an award for acting. And um, Roger Ebert came up to me and he was like, just seeing you in the flesh, I wanted to punch you in the face. And he spun it into saying, like, that shows what an incredible performance you you did or something like that. So it was a veiled compliment in some weird way. Yeah. So I ended up moving to England for a year, which was really good. I had no money. I just went out there and I went to Slam City Skates in Covent Garden. And I was like, does anyone want to go skating tonight? I stayed at a youth hostel and... That night I met who would become my roommate for the next year, this guy, Seth Curtis. And it's weird for me to think back now to being like, damn, I was 18 and I just moved to England without knowing anybody. Like, what the fuck was I thinking? 
Well, did you find, I mean, this comes back to our conversation before about the sense of community that skateboarding allows. I mean, was there a commonality of, of, of cultures oh, yeah. amongst skateboarders when, I mean, you literally could just roll up to a skate, a skate park or a skate shop and just be like, Hey, I'm part of this tribe. Let's hang out. Yeah. And I think you can do that all around the world. I don't even think you need to speak the same language. You, and, and, you know, growing up skateboarding, it used to be like, oh, somebody's wearing a pair of Vans and a black flag shirt or something. Maybe they're into skating. Skateboard fashion has gotten so large that you can't really tell anymore who's a real skateboarder and who isn't. But if you're on a skateboard and like, you know, if you went to the LES park or something, there's no doubt in my mind you can meet, you know, friends that would last you for the rest of your life. You know, and I feel that way in Paris and you know Tokyo and there's a place in Barcelona called MACBA which is I believe the Museum of Art Contemporary Barcelona something like that but MACBA is it's basically just um, the skateboard spot it's a, in front of a museum but it's like a tourist destination skateboarders from all over the world go to skate this spot in Paris, it's the Palais de Tokyo. It's behind the Palais de Tokyo, which is another museum. There's like this amazing skateboard spot. Any given day, there's like 50 to 100 kids there skating. When I was growing up, it was the Brooklyn Max, you know. And all you have to do is show up and just not be a kook and not blow it. And for the most part, you'll be like welcomed with open arms, you know. Whether or not you know the language, as long as you just don't like blow it and you're just like kind of cool and do your thing then like yeah i know i don't think i think skateboarders it's i don't know i mean san francisco definitely had a scene like the emb kind of pier seven crews philadelphia had scenes but like philadelphia it was love park you know if you went to love park i mean a lot of people got robbed there too but you know you it was a great place to just go and meet people and uh you know and i think that starts in your local neighborhood, you get the skateboard, you go to the local spot, then you meet your friends, and then you and your friends kind of slowly go to more and more places and build your crew. And, and yeah. Like in hindsight, if you could, if you could speak to your 16 year old self when you were first starting filming with Larry and kids was about to come out, is there a piece of advice that you wish or that you could have given to yourself that would have made things different or easier? Not really. Just like that. It'll all be fine. Like, everything's just going to happen. You know, I'm a high school dropout. Like, I never had a plan. So the fact that, like, I've survived this long is, like, pretty good. You know, I've had a lot of friends who have passed away, a lot of friends who have kind of disappeared, like, just kind of into the ether. And so, yeah, it takes a little bit of work and stuff, but... And I don't recommend this for anyone else. (laughs) Like... To just kind of roll with it. You know, it's like definitely if you're able to come up with a plan, come up with a plan. Um, yeah. So, but I had no plan. And, and the interesting thing was I feel like I did kids and then I did the wire. And the wire is what kind of saved me from being just the guy from kids because people really like the wire. And did you have some people in your corner by that point in terms of? career advice and team and management yeah. i mean was that chapter a little bit easier to navigate yeah this is probably like seven years after kids or something so i had already moved to london i'd already moved to la and i'd already moved back to new york in the course of like four years or something so like i moved to london to skate 
and just kind of like live in London. Then I came back to New York. I was like, nope, this still doesn't feel good. And then I moved to LA. But again, it's this idea of couch surfing. You know, I know all these skaters, so I can live wherever I want. And in LA, I was Damon Wayne's assistant. Do you know who Damon Wayne is? Yeah, yeah. His personal assistant. So I would have to go to like Pier 1 Imports and buy bullshit for his like house. Like I'd have to wait for the cable guy. So I still wasn't doing any acting. But kind of in Hollywood, right? As a result. <laughs> yeah, but I just went there to go skate. And then in the Hollywood people, because they're so career driven, people would be like, hey, why don't you act anymore? Like, that's weird. Like, yeah. that's why we move here. This is this is what this whole city is built on. And I knew I was fortunate to have done it. But again, it's not anything I ever wanted to really do in the first place. But I felt guilty for not pursuing it. So I did like just start going on like little auditions and stuff. To be honest, I don't, I haven't watched very much of what I've done. And I have no idea like how many films or television shows I've ever done. I know I did Kids. I know I did The Wire. Every New York actor has done Law and Order. So I'm sure I've done one or two of those. And then I did a show on Adult Swim that I liked very much. Everything else is kind of a blur. But I think that kind of just speaks to your your perseverance of just, you kind of have this attitude of just one foot in front of the other. And you say, maybe you never really had a plan, but it seems like your plan is to just live another day and keep going. And, and things seem to happen correctly for you. you know? Yeah. And, and it's like, I think one day I'll like get a chance to look back and <laughs> be like, all right, now, now I can like see what I've done. But I do think that everything informs everything else. Why the hell I still have a a radio show or an internet radio show, I don't even enjoy it. I just do it because I feel like I need to do it. It's like crazy. I drag records to the shipping container in Brooklyn to DJ for nobody for two hours. And for me, it's like, I can't DJ at bars or clubs anymore. Like, that's just not who I am. I don't have that kind of energy. But I still love music and I still like love the idea of DJing. But every time I have to do it, I'm like, why don't I just quit? And I think I've tried to quit and they won't let me. Because <laughs> I don't need to do certain things, but I do it Well, cool. So we, we always like to, at the end of the podcast, give guests an opportunity to to plug something that they're not directly involved in that they feel hasn't gotten enough attention lately, whether it's like a book or a movie or an artist, or a cause. Is there something you want to shout out to just give a little shine to? All right, so something I promote a lot is this app um, on your phone. It's free. I don't know the people who make this thing. I don't know anything about it. But it's an app called Seesaw, and it's just S-E-E-S-A-W, and it looks like a little triangular weird thing. And this app is by city, so it's like New York, London, Paris, LA, and by neighborhood. And it's every gallery in every city in every neighborhood. So if you look up the New York one, it says downtown, uptown, Chelsea, Tribeca, Brooklyn, something like that. And then you click on, say, Tribeca. And it's every gallery with every art show in Tribeca with like a little writing and a little preview of each art show. So it's a really great way to kind of see what's happening. You know, I see a lot of art shows a week And people think, like, how do you go see 20 to 30 art shows a week? And it's like, well, if you look at this app, you realize how close everything is. 
And if you take two hours and go to Tribeca, you can see 20 art shows, you know. And the platform set up, it's, 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 it's digestible and, and, and easy to, to kind of sift through and find the stuff that, that, that speaks to you. Yeah, I mean, you have to be curious. Like, you know, I think curiosity is a good thing. You have to investigate it a little and learn it and like see if there's some names you recognize, but even names you don't. That's, I think that's great. So check out Seesaw. And-, yeah, and it feels dirty to promote an app. Like, I don't like promoting technology, but, uh, but it's honestly the one thing I use, like, the most often. Cool. Well, Leo, I know you're a busy dude. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down. Hopefully our pass will cross soon. I'll see you uh, a drop-off maskless real soon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's funny, I was thinking, because, like, you know, I have this massive beard and my skin's all jacked up. And I was like, oh, now, like, I kind of like the mask thing because you could look as haggard as you want and nobody would know or care. Yeah. Now we got to start taking care of ourselves. I have a bad habit of, of talking to myself on the street. So masks have provided me a lot of cover the last two years. So I actually don't mind it too much. But Leo, thank you very much, man. I really appreciate it. And um, hopefully I'll see you soon. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening, and a huge thanks to today's guest for dropping in. If you enjoyed this episode, do us a favor and take a minute to rate, review, follow, or subscribe. This episode of The Plug was executive produced by Ryan Bucci and Peter Buckingham. Theme music by Andrew Van Weingarten and Dan Drohan, with sound design by Brad Worrell at Soundwag. Thanks again, and be sure to tune in for future conversations.